Well, it's one of the most famous maritime tragedies in all of history. The sinking of the Titanic, April 15th, 1912. The White Star Line, ocean liner, the Titanic, and the captain who was in a race to set a transatlantic speed record, ignoring the warnings of icebergs that they were approaching, struck an iceberg, and we all know the Titanic eventually sank, its stern rising high into the air as the ship slowly slipped into the icy waters of the Atlantic. It was a tragedy. But what many people don't know is that the real tragedy of the Titanic took place after the boat had slipped beneath the icy waters. You see, it was interesting because as the lifeboats from the Titanic spread out amongst the waters of the Atlantic Ocean, amongst the crying, drowning swimmers, uh, they're looking for help and hope. The story that night played out in a way that was almost totally devoted to selfishness and the self-serving interests of those who had made it onto a lifeboat. In fact, out of the 1,600 people who didn't originally get into the lifeboats who found themselves treading water in the icy Atlantic, only 13 ended up being picked up by the 18 lifeboats that made it off the Titanic. Kent Hughes shares how the scene unfolded. In boat number five, when third officer Pittman heard the anguished cries, he turned the boat around and shouted, now men, we will pull towards the wreck. But the passengers protested. Why should we all lose our lives in a useless attempt to save others from the ship? Pittman gave in. And for the next hour, boat number five, with 40 people on board and a capacity of 65, heaved gently on the calm Atlantic while the 40 listened to the fading cries of the swimmers 300 yards away. The story was much the same on the other boats. In boat number two, fourth officer Boxhall asked the lady, shall we go back? They said no. So boat number two, about 60% full, likewise drifted while her people callously listened to the pleas for help from those in the water. On boat number six, the situation was reversed as the women begged Quartermaster Hitchens to return, but he refused, painting a picture of drowning people overturning their boat and putting them in dire risk. The women pleaded, yet the cries grew fewer and fewer. Of the 18 lifeboats that made it off the Titanic, only one boat, number 14, returned to help, and that was over an hour after the Titanic had sunk and the crowds of desperate swimmers had begun to thin out. This was the real tragedy of the Titanic. And the wrongness of everything that took place that evening points us to the fundamental problem of the human heart. Prophet Jeremiah in chapter 17, verse 9, tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We see this reality played out throughout history. We see this reality each and every day. The reality of our heart's fundamental sin sickness. Who can understand it? Well, God understands it. And he's given us his word so that we can understand it as well. And friends, we need to understand this morning that our greatest need as human beings is to recognize our desperate plight, our fundamental problem 
facing each and every one of us here this morning. Our hearts sin sickness. This is what the message of Christianity is all about. True Christianity, biblical Christianity, at its most basic level, is about God's revelation to men and women revealing the desperate condition of our hearts, but also the wondrous news that he has provided a remedy. He's provided a cure, a cure for our sickness. What is that remedy, that cure? It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, last week we talked about the reality that the world needs Jesus. And the world needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. It needs both the bad news, the reality of our desperate condition, but it also needs the good news that a remedy has been provided. And as we discovered last week, our spiritual adversary, the devil, has flooded our world with counterfeits. Counterfeits of Jesus Christ, counterfeits of the true biblical gospel. In Paul's day and age, the, the counterfeit gospel he was facing was the counterfeit gospel of Gnosticism. It, it was a cult of Christianity that argued Jesus plus. Jesus plus works, Jesus plus secret knowledge, Jesus plus rituals is necessary for salvation. But in our day and age, we also have our counterfeit gospels. In our day and age, our counterfeit gospels look more along the lines of things like these. Men and women are essentially good. Our fundamental problem is simply ignorance. God wants you healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. All religions are basically the same. God is satisfied with our best efforts and good works. There's no ultimate judgment in the afterlife. And you can become God yourself. And a whole host of others. Our world is flooded with counterfeit gospels. And as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers with these counterfeit gospels so they cannot see the light of the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, the reality is all of these ideas might sound good, but they're not the real good news. They're counterfeits. And so we need to know the truth. The Apostle Paul has revealed for us the real gospel here in our passage this morning. Last week, we saw how Paul described for us the real Jesus Christ. Today, he's going to point us to the real gospel. Again, why? Because we need to know the real thing so that we can identify the counterfeits. Paul highlights for us the real gospel of Jesus Christ in Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. Let's take a look at our passage this morning. After giving us this powerful depiction of Jesus Christ and who he is, in whom the fullness of God dwelled, we read here in verse 21 through 23, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Here in these three simple verses, Paul reveals for us the real gospel of Jesus Christ. He shares with us, number one, that the real gospel is about humanity's problem. Humanity's problem. 
This past week, I was visiting my mom out in my, uh, my parents' home in Eden Prairie. And uh, it's always fun going home, you know, you get to think, you know, all the past memories of where I grew up. And my mom in her living room, she has on her coffee table a memory book that she made. Uh, it's a creative memory book that she made, one for both myself and my brother when we graduated from high school. And I was thumbing through this, uh, this memory book, reminding, being reminded of who I once was. You know, it's interesting, you look back on those past pictures of, you know, who I once was. I mean, I was once a cute little baby there. I, I was once a toddler, you know, all excited on the first day of preschool. I was once a chubby kid playing the saxophone. I was once a junior high basketball player wearing way too short of shorts. <laughs> I was once a football player at Eden Prairie High School. I was once an 18-year-old man with a pretty decent head of hair. <laughs> Who I once was. You know, you look at these pictures and you think, well, here's an average all-American type kid. And in many ways, I was. But there was another side to me, friends. And our passage this morning gives us a picture of who I was. And it's not a pretty picture. Paul says in verse 21 that I was once alienated. I was hostile in mind. I was doing evil deeds. And you know, these pictures all look well and good, but the reality was what you see here doesn't reveal who I really was. I was a liar. I was a cheater. I was a thief. I lusted after women. It wasn't a pretty picture. I was alienated from God, hostile in mind and doing evil deeds. But friends, if we're honest with ourselves this morning, this picture Paul paints for us isn't just about me. It's a picture about all of us. In fact, in Philippians chapter 3, verses 18 through 19, Paul elaborates on this picture and the reality of who each of us really are. He says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Friends, that's an appropriate description for each and every one of us at one point in our lives maybe even for some of you here today, or for those of you watching online. Glory in their shame, mindset on earthly things. This was all of us at one point. Paul, in our passage this morning, describes this reality as being alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. The, the idea of alienation speaks to our separation from God. We are far from God. We are estranged from God. And the reality is, we need to understand this morning that these, this alienation Paul describes, this is our natural state. We don't create this alienation. We are alienated. That's who we are, our fundamental reality. And when Paul speaks about being hostile in mind and doing evil deeds, those are just the fruit of our alienation, our reality, our separation from God. See, at heart... We are rotten, rotten to the core. A couple, couple weekends ago, my brother and I went up to our family's cabin to do our annual fall maintenance and get ready to shut it down for the winter, and we opened the door to our cabin, and there was like a funky smell in there. 
Like not real bad, but like just something was off, right? And so we, we started walking around thinking like maybe a mouse died in here or something. We, and we're looking all over the place and we can't figure out where the smell is coming from. So we just, you know, we opened some windows and we figured, okay, well, we'll see what happens. And I got thirsty, so I went to our refrigerator to grab a bottle of water. We got a beautiful refrigerator, a brand new refrigerator this past year, stainless steel, you know, it's all bright and shiny on the outside, and it was humming away, running just like it should, and I went to open the door to the refrigerator, and all of a sudden, bam, I got hit in the face with this horrible stink. Just reek, like you can't even imagine. And there in the refrigerator, I discovered a pound of ground beef that had been sitting there for over a month since Labor Day weekend. It reeked. I slammed the refrigerator shut. I was thinking about that this week as I thought about our problem, our fundamental problem as human beings. See, just like that refrigerator, we can make ourselves look all nice and shiny on the outside. But on the inside, we reek. Our sin is a stench to our holy creator, God. And a lot of people go through life thinking, you know, it's all the outer wrapping stuff that matters. Maybe even some of you here came to church this morning, you know, I'm going to put some nice clothes on, I'm going to go to church. And the outside, it looks really good. But on the inside, you reek. It's our fundamental problem. It's our, it's our sin nature. It's the, the desperate plight that each of us faces. Romans chapter 3, verse 10, the Apostle Paul tells us that there is no one righteous. No, not one. In Romans 3.23, he tells us that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In Romans 5.12, he goes on and tells us that every single one of us is a sinner because all have sinned. King David in Psalm 51 verse 5 says that he was sinful from birth, sinful from the time he was conceived. See, this is our fundamental problem, friends. We are sinners. We are rebels at heart, and our sin alienates us from our holy creator, God. There's probably no better biblical illustration of our alienation from God than, than the Old Testament temple in Jerusalem. The, the first temple was built by King Solomon. King Herod, in the time of Jesus, had rebuilt the temple it was one of the most magnificent structures in the ancient world. And, and the temple to the Jews in Jerusalem, the temple represented the very presence of God there in Jerusalem, in their midst, the, the holy of holies where, where God's throne on earth dwelt. But you see, the temple wasn't just a reminder of God's presence. The temple, in many ways, was a massive no-entry sign. Reminding the people of their alienation from God. You see, the temple consisted of a series of courtyards and gates. The, the outer courtyard was open to anyone, Jews and Gentiles, non-Jewish people. But then as you entered into the next entrance of the, the next inner courtyard, you came to a courtyard that was only open to the, to the Jews. Jewish men and Jewish women. But as you pass through the next gate into the next courtyard, you moved into a courtyard that only Jewish men could enter. And then you went from that courtyard into an area known as the holy place that only the Jewish priests could enter. And then inside the holy place, there was another area that was behind a massive curtain that separated the holy place from an area known as the holy of holies. And only one person, the high priest, one time a year, 
was able to go through the curtain into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place where the throne of God dwelt. The whole thing was a big picture representing the reality of our alienation from God, reminding us that we cannot enter into God's presence. The good news, however, is that that veil has been torn. A way of reconciliation has been made. And this leads us to Paul's second point here in our passage, verse 22. The real gospel is about God's provision. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Friends, the good news is that God has made a way through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. It was the death of Jesus Christ that made a way for us to be reconciled, made a way for that alienation to be remedied. How did Jesus' death provide this reconciliation for us? Well, it's interesting when we read what took place when Jesus died on the cross. For example, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, we, we read this account of Jesus' crucifixion. Mark tells us when the sixth hour had come, that's noon, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, 3 p.m. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed to give him a drink saying, wait, let's see if Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. The Gospel of John tells us that that loud cry was to tell us die. It is finished. And he breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Hallelujah. Amen. The curtain of the temple was torn in two, friends. A way had been made, breaking through our alienation, a way providing reconciliation. How did Jesus' death reconcile us to present us holy and blameless before God? Well, friends, just consider Jesus' final words on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did Jesus say that? What did that mean? Friends, the reason why Jesus cried out, why have you forsaken me, is because when Jesus hung on that cross, he took upon himself all of our sins, which cause us to experience alienation from our holy creator God. He took our alienation so that we could experience reconciliation. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As the weight of all of the sin of the entire world fell upon him, he took it gladly because he knew that as the Son of God, the perfect sacrifice, he was the only possible means 
to reconcile our alienation with God. Jesus did that for us. And then the Gospel of John in John 19, 28 through 30 tells us that as he sighed and breathed his last, he yelled out the word, Tetelestai! It is finished. Now what was finished? Friends, this is remarkable when you understand this word tetelestai in the ancient world was used, it was written or stamped on receipts whenever a debt was paid in full. If you owed a debt and you paid off that debt, you would go to the debt holder and the debt holder would receive your payment and he would take a stamp or he would take a pen and he would write on that receipt, the debt has been paid, tetelestai, it is finished, paid in full. And friends, understand when Jesus Christ cried out, tetelestai, he was declaring on the cross that our debt has been paid. It is finished. And there's nothing more that we need to do than put our trust in what he has done for us. All of this was foreshadowed, prophesied 700 years earlier by the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 53, the prophet Isaiah told us what Jesus, the coming Messiah, would do for us. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. He took our sin. He paid our debt. It is finished. And this is why the Apostle Paul in Romans 6.23 tells us that while the wages of sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Why is it a gift? It's a gift because the debt was paid. He paid what we could never pay back. He paid the debt we owed. This week while I was working on this sermon, I I had that great hymn running through my mind all week long. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain and he washed it white as snow. Friends, I want to ask you this morning, have you put your trust in Jesus Christ? Has your debt been paid? Your sins forgiven? Do you know the peace that comes through reconciliation with your holy creator, God? This past Thursday, one of the entertainment icons of my generation passed away. A man named Coolio. 59 years old. Coolio wrote a number of number one hit songs, sold over 17 million albums, became a multimillionaire, became a TV star, movie star. Probably his most well-known song is his hit, Gangsta's Paradise. Gangsta's Paradise opens with this line, as I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I take a look at my life and realize there's not much left. I don't know where Coolio stood with the Lord. I do know this, though. He was wise enough to recognize the brevity of his life and that our days are numbered and that each and every one of us will face the grave. Friends, what about you this morning? How much life do you have left? And when you die, are you going to stand before God to face his judgment 
or will you stand before him reconciled through Jesus Christ? See, those are the only two options any of us have. Hebrews 9, 27 through 28 describes the condition of every single person on this earth today. Hebrews 9, 27 tells us it is destined for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Friends, you're in one of two categories this morning. Every single one of us. You're awaiting that day when you will die and you will stand before God in judgment. Or you are saved, reconciled to God through Jesus Christ and you're eagerly awaiting his return. Which category are you in this morning? Those are the only options. How can you be in that second category? Obviously, that's where we want to be. We want to be saved. We want to be reconciled to God. I want to be one of those who are eagerly awaiting his return. Friends, if that's your heart's desire, the Apostle Paul tells us it's a simple matter. In Romans chapter 10, 9 through 13, the Apostle Paul tells us, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Be saved. That's the gospel, that's the good news, friends. When we trust in Jesus Christ, we have the opportunity to experience reconciliation with God. We have a problem on our own, but God's made a provision through his son. I hope you don't miss out on the joy of turning your heart over to Jesus, acknowledging your sin and your need for him, allowing him to, to cover your sin with his shed blood so that your holy creator no longer sees the stink of your sin, but sees the blood of his son that covers it. The blood that allows us to experience reconciliation versus alienation. Don't miss that opportunity to know Jesus Christ, friends. So Paul's told us here this morning that the real gospel is about humanity's problem. It's about God's provision. Thirdly, Paul tells us that it's about salvation's proof. In these opening verses, 21 through 22, Paul has taken us from the depths of our depravity and alienation to the heights of our glorious salvation and reconciliation through Jesus. But here in verse 23, we find a statement that for a lot of people seems to be a monkey wrench thrown into the whole works of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at what verse 23 says. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Now on first reading, that doesn't sound too good, does it? What's this if indeed talk all about here, right? I mean, if indeed you continue. It almost sounds like all the promises we've read up to this point in Paul's letter come with strings attached. All this promises is for you if, indeed, you continue in the gospel. 
Now, friends, you need to understand this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you can put your mind at ease. See, Paul isn't casting doubt on our salvation here. He's simply saying that a person who is genuinely saved will demonstrate that salvation by continuing in the faith, stable and steadfast. Let me, let me share a quick Greek instruction tutorial with you. The word if in the Greek in the New Testament, it can be used in a variety of ways. In fact, there's four different ways the word if can be used, and the force of the word if is always determined by the mood of the verb with which it is used. So in the New Testament Greek, if can mean if and it is true. It can mean if and it is false. It can mean if and maybe it's true or maybe it's false. And it can mean if and I wish it were true, but it's not. Those are the four ways the word if can be used in the Greek. Now, how does Paul use if in our passage? Well, here in verse 23, the word if is followed by a verb in the indicative mood, and that means a verb that conveys certainty or something that's real. So in this case, Paul is using the word if in sense of option one, if, and it is true. So the if here in our passage could also be translated as since. If, and it is true, since. Since, indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Now, that's probably a lot more technical than any of you cared for this morning. The bottom line is simply this. Understand, Paul is not casting doubt on the faith of the Colossian believers. Rather, he's affirming his confidence in their faith, a confidence that is rooted in all of the promises that he's already shared with them throughout chapter 1. I mean, we have seen repeatedly and repeatedly over the last few weeks Paul's declarations of confidence in their faith and what the gospel had accomplished in their lives. Now, what does this mean for us here this morning? Well, friends, we need to understand today that a follower of Jesus isn't saved by persevering in the faith. They persevere in the faith because they are saved. And only a born-again follower of Jesus Christ will continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. An unsaved person cannot persevere because they do not possess the Holy Spirit who divinely and supernaturally enables us to accomplish our perseverance. But if someone is truly saved, they will remain so, and the evidence will be seen in the steadfastness of their walk with the Lord. Now, understand this, friends. It might not be a perfect walk. It might be a walk where we stumble and fall into sin, but it will be a persistent walk and a pursuing walk, a persevering walk, continually looking to follow Jesus. Now, some of you might be thinking this morning, well, Jason, what about the person who once professed faith in Jesus? What about the person who, who put their trust in Jesus, you know, at a church retreat, and, and yet today they're living out their life in a way that's completely opposite of what they claim to profess? They don't live their Christian life with any consistency. What about that person? Friends, this is a person we need to be rightly concerned for. It's a person we need to be praying for. See, we need to remember that not everyone who calls themselves a Christian is truly born again. 
The Bible declares that a true Christian will not live in a state of ongoing, unrepentant sin. 1 John, 1, verse, 1 John chapter 3, verse 6 tells us this. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. The Bible also says that anyone who walks away from the faith is demonstrating that they were never truly in the faith. 1 John 2, verse 19 tells us, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are all not part of us. These are hard truths. They're hard because every single one of us knows people. What about that person? What about that person who used to sit among us here and now they're not walking with the Lord? Where are they? Are they saved? God knows. I don't know. I do know based on the biblical evidence that we have reason to be concerned. And we need to pray. The good news is that if passages like these are convicting to you, maybe you're here this morning and you're experiencing conviction hearing these, these types of truths. The good news is that God's grace is available to you. The good news is what we read in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. See, if you're experiencing conviction this morning, hearing uh, the idea that if you're not living out your faith consistently, that maybe you don't really have a genuine faith, the answer to that conviction is not to bite your teeth and clench your fists at God. The answer is to get to your knees and humble yourself before him and ask him to forgive you and bring you back into a right relationship with him. Friends, salvation's proof is perseverance. It's a perseverance that's divinely enabled when we trust in Jesus Christ. And when we trust in Jesus Christ, we can be confident that our alienation from God has been remedied and our reconciliation with him is secured. Remember what the Lord, our good shepherd, told us in John chapter 10, verses 27 through 28. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ for every single one of us who trusts in him. That's the real gospel, friends. Don't miss out. Don't miss out on the new life, the eternal life, the life abundant that Jesus offers each of us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for the power of the gospel, the good news. Yes, the good news includes some bad news, that we are alienated from you, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. And that alienation is, is dire. It's serious. It separates us from you, our creator. But you and your great love for us have made a way through your son's death on the cross. You've made a way of reconciliation, a way for us to come into an experience of new life, life abundant here and now, eternal life forevermore, standing in your presence holy and blameless, not because of anything that we've done, but because of what Jesus did for us. 
You paid our debt, Lord, and we thank you. You paid it all, and all to you we owe. Help us to live our lives, Lord, faithfully, consistently, firm, steadfast, not turning from the hope that we've experienced in the gospel. Help us to honor you with our lives, to, to live every day as a, an act of worship, a testament, a testament to the amazing grace that we've experienced. Help us to worship you daily through our words, our actions, our, our deeds, our interactions with others so that we might point this lost and dying world to the hope that's found in Jesus. Lord, we also pray this morning for those people in our lives who we know, who we love, who aren't walking with you today. And we're concerned about them. And only you know the true state of their hearts, Lord. We pray for these people, Lord. We pray for our kids. We pray for our grandkids. We pray for our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers. People who may believe they're saved, but may possibly not be truly saved. Again, Lord, that's your business to know their heart, but we pray that you would bring them back into a right walk with you, a consistent walk with you, that they would not turn from the hope of the gospel, that they would remain firm and secure, steadfast in their commitment to you. Convict their hearts, Lord, today. Point them to the truth. Remind them of the amazing grace that's available in Jesus. And may that inspire them to want to honor you and live for you. Help us to remain firm and steadfast in our prayers for them and in our witnessing to them and, and in our invitations back into the arms of Jesus and his amazing grace. We pray, Lord, for those, those folks that we love. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your great name. Amen. Friends, you can stand for our benediction this morning. It comes from Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. Now to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you and have a great week. Hey friends, thanks for joining us online today. If you have further questions, are in need of prayer, or would like to give financially to the ministries of Lakes Free Church, I encourage you to visit our website, lakesfree.org. There you'll also find information regarding our upcoming events. You can access all of our past sermon series, along with a host of other valuable resources. If you're in the area, we'd love to have you join us in person for one of our Sunday services or other events. We'd love to meet you. Thanks again for joining us, and may God bless you.